We shall now turn to Hebrews chapter 4, and you'll find our text at the end of the chapter, Hebrews 4 and verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, we all want to get to heaven at the end of the day. But the road is difficult. It's a long road, many enemies, many obstacles. It's not an easy journey. We're very much aware of our own weaknesses and failings. Will we make it? Well, this chapter is a warning to us. It tells us of those who set out for the promised land and never made it. And that's there for us to take to heart. It's not enough to begin well. We must persevere unto the end. But to encourage us, we're told that we have an amazing high priest who's tremendously sympathetic. And we're also told that we have a wonderful place to come to for, for help, a throne of grace where we can come for help. So let's think first of all about the journey the Apostle says to us here in verse 11, Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. We are to labor to enter into the rest of heaven. And verse 9, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God, the rest of heaven. And verse 1, let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into this rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. The Israelites, they set out for the land of Canaan. And for them, the land of Canaan was the promised land. And it was a type of of heaven it symbolized heaven you and I were also born in the land of Egypt born in sin and shapen in iniquity born in the land of Egypt as Bunyan put it born in the city of destruction but we've been called out just as Israel were called out of Egypt by God through Moses as God called Abraham from the land of Ur. Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will be a God to thee and to thy seed after thee. I will bless him who blesses thee and curse him who curses thee. Abraham called out, you and I 
called out of Egypt, called away from the city of destruction. By grace, we leave that land behind us and we set off for the promised land of heaven. But the Israelites, how many Israelites perished in the wilderness? Why did they perish? Well, there was complaining, wasn't there? They hadn't gone just two or three days' journey into the wilderness when they were complaining about thirst. God brought them water out of the rock. They were complaining about hunger. God gave them manna. And then after a while, the mixed multitude began to grumble and said, We're fed up of this manna. Manna, the very best food possible, balanced by God so that it was ideal. All the vitamins were there that they needed. The protein, the fat, whatever they needed was there. But they grumbled and complained and longed for the flesh pots of Egypt, the onions and the garlic and the melons and the fish. God was angry, complaining. And then when they came to Mount Sinai and Moses was up on the mount, they made a golden calf, idolatry. And then when they came to the southern borders of the promised land and the spies, the majority of spies came back saying, oh, these Canaanites, they're giants. They're cities of walls all the way up to heaven. And they have iron chariots. It's hopeless. They were frightened and refused to go in to possess the land. And then you remember in the plains of Moab how they committed fornication with the women of Midian and of Moab. They perished because of their Various sins. And yet, when all these sins are boiled down, it comes to one sin, doesn't it? Just one sin, really. What sin? The sin of unbelief. They didn't believe God. They didn't trust God. They didn't take God at his word. It was the sin of unbelief. You have it in verse 11. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Or go to the end of chapter 3. So we see they could not enter into the promised land, that is, because of Unbelief. That's very interesting, isn't it? Some people think that the Israelites were saved by their works, by their keeping of the law, by their performing sacrifices and ritual. What rubbish. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. By grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. 
It was by grace through faith in the Old Testament, justice in the New. There's really only one way of salvation ever since the fall. Only the one way, faith in Jesus Christ, looking forward to the coming seed of the woman who would bruise the head of the serpent, looking forward to Calvary, just as you and I in faith look back to Calvary. The covenant of grace is the only way. And there's one condition with the covenant of grace. Faith. Faith which is the gift of God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Really, unbelief is at the root of every other sin. The Israelites couldn't enter the land of promise because of unbelief. You see, at the very beginning of our Christian life, We're justified by faith. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So at the very beginning, at the point of our conversion, faith must be there. But faith is not just something that you exercise when you become a Christian. Faith is something that must go on every day. We're justified by faith. We're adopted by faith. We're sanctified by faith. We persevere by faith. Every stage of the way, faith must be exercised. Dependence upon the Lord, resting upon Christ, looking to Jesus, trusting in him. Faith. Faith is so important. Every day, We need faith. Faith to resist temptation. We need a shield against a terrible enemy. And what's our shield? The shield of faith. Able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. That's our hiding place. Behind faith. Faith in him. The shield of faith by which we get victory over the fiery darts of the wicked one. So we begin our journey to the promised land by faith. We continue it by faith, and we end it by faith. And that's why Paul could speak to the Thessalonians and speak of their work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. Work of faith. Strange idea, isn't it? Surely faith and works are opposite. But no, he speaks of a work of faith because where faith is real, it expresses itself in works. And you might think labor of love is strange too because surely there's no labor in love. But yes, there is. Where faith is, it labors. Where faith is, it works. Where love is, it labors. It shows itself. And then patience of hope. Yes, because we have this hope, we have perseverance. And patience in the scriptures is really perseverance. That's what the word means, perseverance. 
keeping on going. So, the journey. And then this chapter tells us about the Word. Verse 12, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and incense of the heart. God's word is quick. That means it's alive. It's living. It's not something dead, inanimate, lifeless. No, it's sharp. It's quick. It's, it's, it's alive. God's word is alive. And nobody is converted without that word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And it's as we hear, we're saved. So we need the word so that we will be converted, born again through the word. Yes, the word, even as a function with a new birth, it's re related to it, linked with it. The washing of regeneration by the word. Regeneration, the new birth, washing of the new birth by the word. So the word there is so important. Faith comes by hearing. And then, having begun the Christian life, we need the word every day. God's word to be speaking to us. The children of Israel, they had Moses there as their prophet, their teacher, speaking the word to them. And so that word was a light to their feet, a lamp to their path, guiding them through the wilderness. See that you do all things according to the commandment given to you on the mount, given to Moses on the mount. Everything had, been, had to be according to God's word. The word convicts. The word is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, reaches to the conscience, shows up our sin so that we are naked and opened in the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You can hide nothing from God. You're as an open book before him, not just your behavior or your words, but even your very thoughts, the thoughts and intents of your heart. They're as clear as day to the Lord. All the dreams, all the covetousness, and lust, and anger, and pride. It's all there. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Pretense will not cover you from him. God hates hypocrisy. <clears throat> and so we must keep coming to the word as our daily bread, the law and the gospel, duty and promise. Thankfully, we're not dependent on prophets today. We have a more sure word of prophecy. We have the Bible, the sufficient scripture. Everything we need to know is there for us. And it's not just God's word coming to us on occasion one day and then we have to wait 
some days till some prophet comes along and tells us something else. We have the Bible. We read it each day. We meditate upon it. And it's there giving us light every day, setting before us our duty and God's blessings, God's promises. We have the Bible. We must read it and trust more and more in what it says. All around us here in Inverness, there's lots of people who are ignorant. They maybe heard a little of the Bible. They maybe occasionally read it in the past. <coughs> but the vast majority of people in Inverness really have very little clue what's in the Bible. They might have Bibles in their homes, some of them, but they're dusty on the shelves. The word of life is ignored. But you, you're privileged, you're blessed. Treasure the word, feed upon it, the word of the living God. But then our high priest, verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. Priests were very important in Israel. Aaron was there, and his sons, Eliezer and Ithamar. Eliezer became high priest after Aaron, and then Phineas, the son of Eliezer, became the high priest. And the priests were the sons of Aaron. But we have a high priest too. But he's not of the tribe of Levi. He's not of the sons of Aaron. He was a son of David, of the tribe of Judah, the kingly tribe. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. <coughs> nor the lawgiver from between his feet, Judah. Because our high priest is not of the Levitical type. He's of a superior high priest, one to whom Levi paid tithes, in a sense, when he was in the loins of his father Abraham. And that high priest, Melchizedek, a priest and a king, king of Salem, king of peace, and priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek, and our New Testament Melchizedek is the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of the high priests, the sons of Aaron, were wicked men, men like Annas and Caiaphas, who condemned and crucified the Messiah, the Son of God. But our high priest is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. Our high priest is sympathetic. We have two negatives here, and two negatives make a positive. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with a feeling of our infirmities. 
We have a high priest who can be touched with a feeling of our infirmities. Because he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He knows what it is to wrestle with temptation, to fight with the devil, to overcome the world and Satan. He knows what that is. The Roman Catholics say, when you pray, you should come to to Mary. She's a woman. She's so sympathetic. What an insult to our great high priest. As if any woman could be more sympathetic than the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect high priest, touched with a feeling of our infirmities. Some people today talk as if God was pained by the suffering in this world they talk about God as weeping over Ukraine weeping over the hungry and those suffering with cancer whatever it is just recently I read an article by Patrick Sugdeo of the Barnabas Fund in their magazine they had a big long article by Patrick Sugdeo awful theology saying that God God suffers God God is sympathetic to us because he suffers God is weeping over the pain that's in this world what absolute rubbish the Bible tells us that God is blessed infinitely blessed God is happy infinitely happy Why did God create the world? To glorify himself. God is happy. God is glorious. God is blessed. And God became a man to suffer. And the God who became a man suffered as a man and wept as a man and died as a man. And as a man, he's very sympathetic. He wept over Jerusalem, seeing what the Romans were going to do over it. He said to the women of Jerusalem as he was making his way to Calvary and they were weeping for him, Weep not for me, he said, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Terrible days are coming. Yes, we've got a God who's sympathetic in Christ, our high priest. We've got to get our theology right. God is not a suffering God. God is above suffering. God is sovereign. Nothing happens but according to his will and plan and purpose. And everything that happens in this world contributes to the happiness of God. Everything is ordained by him foreordained by him so nothing happens in this world but according to God's plan for God's glory everything glorifies him the destruction of the wicked in hell forever will glorify his justice and the rewarding of his people forever in heaven will glorify his mercy no 
our God, as God, doesn't suffer, doesn't weep. But our Lord Jesus Christ, he's our sympathetic high priest. He's the one who suffered. He became a man to suffer. Christ alone suffers. And we have a wonderful high priest who has entered into heaven and he's still sympathetic. He's still a man in heaven. God and man, real man, there in heaven. Sympathetic. Able to save even unto the uttermost, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for us. He's always alive forevermore. He'll never die again. Have you claimed this priest for yourself? Is he your advocate? Do you depend on his arguments for you? If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. What an advocate. Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. <coughs> so then, we have a high priest. What an encouragement then that is to us as we make our way through this weary wilderness, beset on every side by fears and troubles and problems and difficulties and temptations. Let's keep going. But then, finally, the throne of grace. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here we have an amazing concept, a throne of grace. We're told in the Bible of a throne of judgment, the great white throne <clears throat> And many people, when they see the great white throne, will be absolutely terrified out of their mind. They will call on the mountains to fall on them and the rocks to cover them from the great white throne and him that sits upon it. All who are outside of Christ, how frightened they will be when they see the throne. But friends, that throne is for us the throne of grace. The throne of grace. It's a throne of grace because the one who sits upon it is our beloved Saviour. It's a gracious throne. And he sits at the right hand of the Father. And he intercedes on our behalf. God is a God of justice. People don't like that nowadays. And there are many churches that will never mention justice, sin, wrath. Evangelical churches around you here, they don't mention, many of them don't mention Sin, wrath, hell, judgment. But these things are in the Bible. 
And Jesus often mentioned them. And we've got to remember that God hasn't changed. The ancient world was destroyed <coughs> with a flood. And it wasn't just a little flood somewhere localized in Mesopotamia, as so many modern ministers will say. There was some flood, and this is all that it really meant, a localized flood in a certain area, and Noah made a boat and so forth. What a lot of nonsense. Why do people not take the word of God seriously? The whole world was covered with a flood. And every man and woman in the world was destroyed by the flood. Apart from the eight people in the ark. And every single animal in the world. In Africa. In Asia. In Australia. In Antarctica. In North and South America and Europe. Every single animal was destroyed apart from the animals in the ark. That's what the Bible says. Do you have any difficulty believing that? God did it. The sovereign God who created this world, who made everything out of nothing. He created the world. He created man upon it. And when man sinned and rebelled and sinned more and more and more, he eventually destroyed the ancient world with a flood. And when he saw the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, he destroyed it, destroyed that whole valley with fire and brimstone. And when he heard Ananias and Sapphira lie against the Holy Ghost in Acts chapter 5, he smote them down dead. It's a God of the New Testament as well as the Old. Some people like to think of the God of the New Testament as a sort of soft God. But our God is the God of justice and mercy. A God of wrath and a God of love. A God who has a throne of grace and a throne of judgment. And how is it a throne of grace to us? Well, because our great high priest has offered up a sacrifice on our behalf to reconcile us to God. He has propitiated, turned away the wrath of God from us so that we are under God's peace, blessing, and reconciled to him. Our priest has made atonement. He himself took our sins upon himself. And suffered the punishment for them. And he gave to us his righteousness. So that we stand before God without sin. And he beholds no iniquity in Jacob. Jacob the supplanter. The deceiver. He sees no iniquity in you. Child of God. He sees you perfect because he sees you in Christ with the righteousness of Christ and every, other, every sin you ever sinned forgiven and every sin you ever will sin to the day you die forgiven. 
because Jesus bore them all. He offered himself as the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Not that the Son of God persuaded the Father to love you. No, it was the Father's love that sent the Son of God into the world. We must remember that. The Father's love sent the Son. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son to reconcile the world to himself. He came into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And in a certain sense, the world will be saved. Not just a little remnant of it, but the world will be saved. Our priest then, he offers the great sacrifice, but that's not all. Having offered the sacrifice, he entered into heaven, and there he's making intercession for us, just as the high priest on the day of atonement went in, into the temple, in through the veil, one day in the year, into the holy of holies, and sprinkle the blood of the sin offering upon the mercy seat. So our Lord Jesus Christ entered heaven with his own blood and sprinkled it upon the throne of God and there has made intercession and makes intercession for us. So that we are justified by his death and by his resurrection. He died for our offences and rose again for our justification. And you and I are in this way justified and also adopted into God's family so that we are children of God and we come as children so that we can come to our Father with the boldness of a child. But the boldness of a child whose sins have been forgiven and the boldness of a child who has an advocate, a priest, a high priest at God's right hand, a mediator, saved by the grace of God, beloved by the Father. Let us come, therefore, boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy, and we need mercy every day, because every day we sin and that we might find grace to help in time of need, to help in the face of temptations, to help in the face of disappointments, to help in the face of trials, to help in the face of persecutions, to help as we face the last enemy, death itself. We come with boldness because we have a high priest, because he is none other than the Son of God. Because we have been adopted, we come with boldness to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. Mercy every day. And grace, grace to help in our time of need. Isn't it wonderful how everything we need 
is provided for us in the gospel. Claim the mediator. Claim his sacrifice. Come boldly to the throne. Don't be like the Israelites who perished in the desert because of unbelief. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we thank thee for the provision that has been made for us in the covenant of grace. We thank thee that the Saviour died for us and rose again and entered into heaven on our behalf and is there making continual intercession for us. We thank thee that the throne of God is a throne of grace for us, not to destroy us but to receive us and to bless us and to give to us each day mercy and grace to help in every need. So enable us then to love the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust in him, to commit ourselves more and more to follow him. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Our closing praise is Psalm 132, and we'll sing verses 7 to 13. 7, 7 to 12, rather. 7 to 12. Psalm 132, verses 7 to 12. We'll go into his tabernacles and at his footstool bow. Arise, O Lord, into thy rest, the ark of thy strength and thou. O let thy priests be clothed, Lord, with truth and righteousness. And let all those that are thy saints shout loud for joyfulness. 7 to 12 to God's praise. <coughs> we'll go into his tabernacles and at his Oh.
the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. Amen.